This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. I'm Tim Kripe, and welcome to episode number 46 Recorded sometime during May 2014 at the Advances in Neuroblastoma Research Conference in Cologne, Germany, by Dr. Neelay Shaw as a host, featuring his guest, Dr. Sue Cohen. I'll leave it to them. Thanks, guys. So welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. This week, I am uh, your guest host, Neelay Shaw, Assistant Professor in uh, Pediatric Hematology and Oncology at Nationwide Children's. And I'm very happy to have with us uh, a leader in... uh, neuroplastoma and pediatric oncology and oncology in general. Um, and in my own life, uh, my first mentor into pediatric oncology, Susan Cohn. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Sue uh, Lerner-Cohn is the professor of pediatrics and dean of clinical research at the University of Chicago. She is the director of clinical research in the Department of Pediatrics there as well. Um, she has a very extensive uh, CV. Um, uh, currently, she is the treasurer of uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, uh, as well as chair of the Hematology Oncology Discipline uh, Committee um, in the Children's Oncology Group and on the Executive Committee of COG. Um, and uh, is her um, experience from a scientific and collaborative background is, is world-renowned. Uh, she has um, a vast number of publications, uh, including the landmark 2009 publication in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, um, where the new INRG uh, risk stratification criteria was, uh, was published, and she was the lead author on that paper. Uh, and as uh, Dr. Andy Pearson uh, told us in a um, recent podcast, uh, 10 years and six months ago, uh, the two of them co-founded the INRG task force, um, leading to uh, a great deal of work to date and uh, much more that we look forward to. So we'll, we look forward to hearing about that today. So again, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So um, we always like to hear kind of about early perspectives. And I, I know personally, I've, I've heard some of your, your early career stories, but if you can share with us, uh, uh, in particular, uh, I remember you telling me about that first time where you really knew science was going to be a, a major part of your career, and there was that, that one tumor sample. Yeah, so as a very young, uh, I guess I was a, uh, a, a resident uh, in pediatrics, and I started doing a little bit of research and started collecting some tumor samples from various um, colleagues of mine in the city of Chicago and uh, started growing the cells in the laboratory and watching um, how they would grow and develop some new cell lines. Um, And one of the tumors that we obtained was from a little baby who had a stage 4S neuroblastoma. And babies with stage 4S neuroblastoma, uh, all of us clinicians know, typically do very well, don't require any therapy whatsoever, and many times the tumor will spontaneously regress. Well, much to my surprise, when I took this baby's neuroblastoma tumor and put it in a petri dish in the laboratory, it just started proliferating like crazy. And this was right around the time when um, Bob Seeger had reported with Garrett Brodeur um, the NMIC oncogene uh, and identified it being amplified in a subset of neuroblastoma tumors. 
and the association between endemic amplification and very aggressive disease. In that particular paper, there were several children who had stage 4 S neuroblastoma, but none of them had endemic amplification. So we went about and did a southern blot, which was the way at the time that we were measuring um, uh, endemic status. And lo and behold, this little baby's tumor that was growing so well in the laboratory also happened to have endemic amplification. Um, I did call the, the child's primary care physician to tell them that I found this um, abnormality on the southern blot, but of course, um, having a student do a research test, that was hardly an indication to change your treatment plan. <laughs> and so the, my colleague thanked me very much for the information. It had never been reported before, didn't quite know what to do with the information, and went ahead and treated the patient as she would any other 4S baby with um, close observation. Well, lo and behold, six months after I'd run that southern blot, uh, this baby's tumor just grew um, uh, very wildly, and, and the patient had widely metastatic disease within a matter of uh, you know, just a couple of days, and unfortunately died. And that was the first time that I really thought as a clinician, which is how I uh, kind of acknowledge myself, that um, there was really a possibility by doing a basic laboratory test, in this particular case a southern blot, and looking at DNA inside of tumor cells, getting a test result and understanding how that could really help a clinician make decisions regarding how optimally to treat a patient. And that really, it was a switch, and that was the very first time um, that I started thinking about how important as an MD and somebody who understood a lot about clinical aspects of neuroblastoma, uh, how important it was to have that type of person work in the lab because had this blot been run by a PhD and they'd seen endemic amplification, well, endemic amplification had been reported, about 20% of neuroblastoma tumors, and a PhD would have said, well, this is a neuroblastoma and some of them are endemic amplified. And it was only because I had the clinical expertise to understand that this particular stage for us had historically had a different type of clinical behavior that I was able to say I understand the clinical aspects of the disease and now I've seen a molecular marker that is associated with poor outcome and I was able to understand how unusual and rare this was and um, subsequently uh, this now is considered a marker of high-risk disease in patients with stage 4S uh, neuroblastoma and uh, our initial finding was subsequently uh, confirmed and validated in several other studies and, and these ch children are now classified as high risk and treated very aggressively and no longer are merely observed. Right, and, and so absolutely uh, you know, taking what could just be a scientific curiosity and finding the clinical relevance and, and uh, directly impacting and I think that's really the, uh, the goal of, of really um, of everyone certainly here at ANR but um, particularly those of us who, who are physician scientists. So. Um, I, I just remember the, the first time I heard that, uh, that story as well and, and, uh, and said, okay, yeah, I, I can do this. <laughs> so for all of you early uh, career trainees out there, remember that don't give us basic researchers a shot. So. <laughs> um, though, uh, so then from there, um, uh, as I remarked, uh, you have been excellent and a leader really, um, particularly stateside in establishing international collaborations. Um, uh, Dr. Haber talked about um, working with you, um, particularly since she is uh, more on the lab side of PhD. 
um, and then obviously with uh, with the collaboration with Dr. Pearson. So tell us a little bit about how kind of all of that started as you were branching out from uh, from the U.S. And, and getting those collaborations. What were the pitfalls? What were really the exciting things? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll start first just in terms of national collaborations. I actually worked at a hospital that was a very busy clinical hospital. It was associated with Northwestern. And, um, but I was the only one that was really doing um, laboratory-based research uh, uh, on neuroblastoma. And so I didn't really have um, somebody to go to specifically. I certainly had mentors at uh, Children's Memorial Hospital, but I didn't have somebody specifically to help me with some of my specific neuroblastoma questions in the lab. And so I reached out very early in my career to other investigators to try to form uh, collaborations so that um, I'd be able to continue to succeed in the lab and be able to answer questions and um, have tools that I didn't necessarily have right on my own campus. So one of my very early collaborators was Dr. Garrett Brodeur. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, this was many years ago, we communicated <laughs> by landline telephone. Um, there was no internet, there was no email. And um, we ended up, um, he was the chair of the Neuroblastoma Biology Committee in the Pediatric Oncology Group, and I was a very junior faculty and joined the Pediatric Oncology Group. So that was and one of the two foundations that, that predated the current Children's Oncology Group. That's right, except before there was COG, there was the Pediatric Oncology Group and the Children's Cancer Group, and um, Children's Memorial, which is where I was at, was, a, was part of the Pediatric Oncology Group. And, um, we, after talking on the phone and exchanging um, things through the mail, uh, we would have meetings approximately every six months at the Pediatric Oncology Group, and I'd bring my notebook with me <laughs> with all of my blots, and, and Dr. Brodeur and I would sit down at a coffee break, and he would have to kind of go through my laboratory notebook with me, and I would talk about how I wanted to modify experiments, and he gave me all sorts of advice. And um, subsequently, I also, through uh, Dr. Bordeaux, I met Dr. Look, uh, and Tom Look was running the reference laboratory for the Pediatric Oncology Group, and he was running all the ploidy tests. Garrett was running all the uh, NMIC tests for patients who uh, had neuroblastoma uh, who were registered in the Pediatric Oncology Group on the biology study. And then subsequently, um, Again, largely through Garrett, uh, I was introduced to the advances in neuroblastoma research, and my very first meeting was in 1990. Um, it was held in Philadelphia in um, basically their auditorium at uh, uh, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and there I was able to be introduced to people from all over the world. Um, so in addition to meeting my colleagues, Dr. Brodeur and Dr. Look, I also was able to meet Dr. Manfred Schwab, who mm -hmm. had written that very first paper that I studied so hard that uh, demonstrated the presence of endemic amplification in um, neuroblastoma cells, and then subsequently met other colleagues, um, including uh, Dr. Haber, um, and we subsequently became very, very close friends. And um, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience, not only scientifically, but just in terms of colleagues and, and close friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's absolutely great to hear. And so, uh, and, and a lot of times it is just that, of just kind of finding people and then being brave enough to yeah. go up and talk to them. So uh, um, something else that we encourage at, at these meetings. And, um, 
uh, and certainly it's been a great experience for, for Carrie and I to be able to talk to people um, in that way at the conference uh, this year. So. Um, so that's great. So um, you are in the leadership of COG, and you're also in the leadership of INRG. Uh, how do you see um, collaborations on an international scale? Uh, how, how is COG really going to be able to fit into that, maintain their own independence, as well as um, to work collaboratively in that way? Well, I really, I think the future is collaboration, and I think the future is international collaboration, and I think that as we are learning more and more and more about these tumors, uh, we're very quickly understanding that really what we have are very small cohorts of individual biologically defined tumors. And um, the only way, in my opinion, that we're ever going to be able to conduct any kind of um, clinical research on these very small subsets of tumors uh, is through international collaboration. And I think the way that we've been doing business in the past, past 30 years, is going to have to change. Um, because right now, when we do a high-risk study, you are taking an extremely heterogeneous series of different tumors, trying to treat them all the same, and seeing that some respond and some don't. And I think the future is to define the biology and understand what the pathogenesis is of each individual tumor, and then obviously design the appropriate therapy for those tumors. And um, they're, the subsets are going to get small fast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, There's a, something that uh, both Dr. Pearson and, and Dr. Haber remarked upon yesterday. Mm -hmm. and, and um, Not only these subsets are going to get small fast, but also the need to really gear up precision medicine, as Dr. Haber put it, uh, to, to target exactly how you're describing it. Right, and I think that the way we're conducting clinical trials is going to change. I think the design of the clinical trials are going to change. Um, there's a lot of uh, different types of study designs that um, number of people have brought up in terms of even an N equals one type of study mm -hmm. for an individual patient. But I think the perfect example is um, you know, the discovery of ALK, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's now well uh, understood that there are ALK aberrations, whether they be mutations or amplification, uh, in a small, small subset of neuroblastomas. But it's even more complicated because even the ALK mutations are not all the same mutations across Absolutely. the tumor, and depending upon the mutation, uh, different tumors respond differently to ALK inhibitors. So to really be able to um, define what is going to be best, those um, uh, sample sizes, those patient sizes, uh, in terms of cohorts, are going to become very small. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we want to do is optimize the therapy for the individual patient, whether you call it personalized medicine or precision medicine, that's clearly the, yeah. the future. Um, and the only way it's going to be able to be accomplished is with international collaboration. It, fortunately, pediatric cancer is rare, <laughs> and neuroblastoma is rare in the world of cancer. And then when you start talking about a neuroblastoma with a particular ALK ab uh, aberration, mm -hmm. you're really talking small, small, small numbers. Absolutely. But uh, it's, a, it's a challenge that, that we certainly do have to gear up for. So. Um, amongst all of your accomplishments, you do still actively manage a quite busy lab. Um, and uh, I had the pleasure uh, um, a couple years ago hearing about your, uh, your work with Spark. Um, and you've had a, a recent publication about that as well. Um, and uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about this molecule and its role in your blastoma and how you think that uh, we can use that therapeutically as well? Yeah. 
So we've been studying in the laboratory a long time, um, uh, trying to better understand how the stroma influences the neuroblastoma cells. So that's the, the, the part of the tumor that's not really the active cancer cell, but it's the supportive tissue. That's right, there. and there's a number of different components to that. There's our, there are inflammatory cells, and there's extracellular matrix cells, and there's infiltrating fibroblasts. And in neuroblastoma, in certain subsets of neuroblastoma, there are infiltrating Schwann cells. And uh, we had identified a long time ago um, that if you have a tumor that has abundant Schwannian stroma, those tumors, uh, the pathologist defined a long time ago, and particularly Hiroshimata, that that was associated with a better outcome than if your tumor was Schwannian stroma poor. Mm -hmm. And we had been studying angiogenesis, oh, I guess now 15 years ago, um, and we published a paper a long, long time ago showing that the numbers of blood vessels correlated with outcome, and tumors that had abundant Schwannian stroma had many, many fewer blood vessels than tumors that were Schwannian stroma poor. And the blood vessels in the Schwannian stroma-rich tumor also uh, pathologically looked more normal. They weren't as torturous. Uh, there wasn't as many um, uh, uh, proliferations within the within the um, within the blood vessel. So our hypothesis was that perhaps there was a uh, natural inhibitor of angiogenesis that was being secreted by the Schwannian stroma that was keeping the uh, uh, blood vessels in check. And because of that, that was why the tumors were behaving more benignly than the tumors that lacked the Schwannian stroma. So basically, if you had more of the stroma, you had fewer blood cells. The tumor itself couldn't really uh, get as much nutrition, if you will, to really grow massively in the same way as the higher risk tumors would. That's correct. And around the same time, I mean, the, the blood vessel correlation between blood vessel density and clinical behavior had been reported for other cancers like breast cancer and gastric cancer. Um, so at any rate, what we went ahead and did was we um, isolated uh, Schwannian stroma, both from normal Schwann cells, from nerves, as well as from the tumor cells, cultured them in a dish. And then we collected the media, um, the, the liquid that sits on top of the uh, Schwann cells in the, in the experiment, with the thought being that if the Schwann cells were producing an endogenous inhibitor of angiogenesis, um, that inhibitor or protein would be spit out into the media. We could collect the media and assay for the particular molecule. So we subsequently took the Schwann cell condition media and we tested it to see if it could inhibit blood vessel formation in various experimental models. And we found that it could, that it did have active anti-angiogenic properties. And then we subsequently did some um, uh, biochemical analysis of the proteins that were in the Schwann cells, fractionated the proteins and subsequently were able to isolate a protein in one of the fractions that was biologically active and uh, sent the band that we isolated for um, analysis and identified this particular protein as SPARC, which stands for, um, let's see. <laughs> uh, secreted. Secreted protein, acidic enriched in cysteine. So um, this is an extracellular matrix protein that plays a role not so much in the structure of the extracellular matrix, but rather in the signaling between the extracellular matrix and um, cells. 
And we've done a series of experiments with this protein and been able to show that the protein does indeed inhibit angiogenesis. We've also made small peptides uh, in an effort to try to make a therapeutic and we're able to demonstrate that these peptides um, were able to also inhibit angiogenesis in neuroblastoma in mouse models. We've more recently looked at other cancers, including lung cancer and um, pancreatic cancer and breast cancer, and we're able to show that uh, these peptides can also inhibit these cancers in preclinical models. And we're now focusing um, on trying to better understand its mechanisms of action and have some active research going on right now to try to identify uh, proteins that bind to spark to see if that can give us a clue. But um, I do think that there are opportunities to develop therapies that are not perhaps directed against the mm -hmm. tumor cell, but rather directed against the, um, stro uh, the stroma because we know the microenvironment of the tumor can very much influence how those tumors grow, whether that microenvironment is tumor promoting or tumor inhibiting. And by modifying the microenvironment, you can make substantial changes in terms of the biology of the overall tumor. Absolutely. And so, so in the same way that there are uh, drugs like Avastin, which are out there, which are supposed to keep that blood supply controlled and kind of starve out the tumor in that global way, uh, where, where those drugs have been somewhat limited in, uh, in early trials, you've gone back to the biology and saying, okay, how does the body actually do it? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and answer it that way. And, and that's also been a, a pervasive theme in your work of finding uh, biologically active um, pathways mm -hmm. to, to target this. And so, uh, if you will, uh, um, working smarter, not harder against these tumors. So, <laughs> yeah, that um, would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, one last talk that, that I did want to talk about, um, the other aspect of your work, uh, recently you've been looking at racial disparities mm -hmm. in neuroblastoma, which is, is it's an interesting thing. Um, uh, some of the minorities are, are underrepresented um, as a total population in neuroblastoma, but you found some interesting findings as far as how they respond. Yeah. So um, I moved about seven and a half years ago to the University of Chicago, and um, I'm very fortunate because there's a huge health disparities program there, and there's also some truly um, internationally recognized um, statistical genomics groups um, at the university. And I was able to uh, collaborate with a woman whose name is Dr. Nancy Cox, uh, who uh, is an expert in looking at um, genetic uh, influences on a variety of different diseases, not just cancer. So what we ended up doing was we took a look at the Children's Oncology Group data and uh, tried to see if there were any differences in outcome according to race and ethnicity. I'd been sitting at all sorts of lectures at the university and seeing that people were reporting differences in outcome for breast cancer and for colon cancer and for other diseases. And I thought, gosh, I don't think anyone's ever looked at neuroblastoma. So we looked at approximately 3,000 patients, I think, um, and were able to demonstrate that, indeed, African Americans have a worse outcome than Caucasians, Hispanics, or Asians. There's also a small population of what we called Native Americans that were a little bit lumped. Um, they included Native Americans as well as um, patients from Alaska, but um, that group was very small, and we really couldn't do much else with that group except to see that they also, as a very small group, also appeared to do much worse than the Hispanics and the Caucasians and the um, Asians. 
So that was the first observation. And then uh, I wanted to see if I could find a genetic reason for why these patients might do worse. Because unlike breast cancer and colon cancer, we don't have a screening tool for neuroblastoma. So the hypothesis is that there are socioeconomic and environmental reasons for African Americans perhaps to do worse than some of these other cancers because they may not be able to go for screening, they may not have contact with physicians, they may not understand that they need to go for a colonoscopy or a mammogram, but we don't have a screening tool for neuroblastoma. And once a child's diagnosed with neuroblastoma, um, all of us at our pediatric hospitals in the States have very involved social workers who make sure that children come in and get their therapy. And in addition, unlike leukemia, where there's also been some racial disparities reported, um, for high-risk neuroblastoma, there's, there's very little in terms of oral medications. Virtually all of the medicine is given in the hospital. So again, we don't have to be concerned that a family perhaps didn't give the child the medicine or didn't pick the medicine up from the pharmacy. And so for a variety of reasons, I really felt that environment was going to be less of a factor, although I'm sure it does have some influence on the outcome and perhaps why there's disparities. But I kind of hy hypothesized that there might be genomic or genetic reasons for why children with uh, neuroblastoma happen to be African-American have done more poorly. In the analysis, the other thing that we found was that the African-Americans had a higher prevalence of the high-risk, aggressive form of the disease. So for whatever reason, um, more of those patients were diagnosed from the get-go with high-risk disease. And we also know in neuroblastoma, unlike breast cancer, uh, you don't go through differences where you're initially diagnosed with a localized tumor, and if you ignore it, it eventually becomes widespread. In neuroblastoma, you're typically either diagnosed with a low-risk disease or a non-high-risk disease and high-risk disease from the very beginning. So again, I didn't think a delay in diagnosis would have as huge an impact as it might in some of these other cancers. So I partnered with Dr. Nancy Cox and also with Dr. John Maris, who had done some um, genotyping on more than, at the time, 3,000 patients. And uh, we used the genomic um, data from Dr. Maris's lab and all the um, wonderful informatics from Dr. Nancy Cox's lab. And I worked with a very um, outstanding um, uh, uh, collaborator of Dr. Cox, uh, whose name is Eric Gamazon, and we did GWAS analysis. And indeed, we were able to identify a so number. So GWAS analysis, just to, to, um, so that's really looking at the whole genome of these tumors and looking at a base pair by base pair to see if any subtle differences you know we're finding. Right. It stands for uh, genome-wide association studies. And it's a way of looking at different uh, minor changes, single nucleotide polymorphisms in a variety of different genes, and seeing if there's associations with a particular um, uh, type of phenotype. And so what we did was we took a look at um, uh, SNPs that were associated with high-risk disease and also where there was racial disparity, so that the allele frequency was different in African-American population from a Caucasian population. And we were able to identify a number of different SNPs that met that criteria um, and uh, really did suggest that uh, there were particular areas and particular genomic sequences that were more prevalent in the African-American population and also associated with high-risk disease. 
Now we still at this point um, don't quite understand the function of these genes and those studies are ongoing, but it did at least demonstrate that there are uh, genetic markers that are seen more prevalently in the African-American population that are associated with high-risk disease. If you have this genetic marker and you're Caucasian, you still have a high propensity of high-risk disease. It's just that that marker is more prevalent in the African-American population. And, and I bring this up because uh, another theme that um, Dr. Pierce and Dr. Haber brought up uh, looking forward um, in, uh, in ANR is going to be um, more outreach and more advocacy for developing economies. And, and we're going to be looking at different racial populations. So it'll be very interesting to see how these findings that you're finding within the U.S. population also play out as we look into uh, uh, in, uh, internationally into, uh, into um, different um, racial backgrounds. So um, it definitely will be, a, a, it gives us a different perspective on, on again, looking at that neuroblastoma is not just one diagnosis. And we are really going to have to be nimble as we approach this disease. Yeah, I think it's very, very complicated. This is my kind of first foyer into looking at host genome. I've always really focused on the tumor genome, which is complicated enough. But it's very clear that um, the host genome also influences all sorts of things in terms of, you know, how you're going to metabolize the drug, whether a drug is going to be particularly active, whether you've got, an, as in this case, a particular predisposition in terms of your genetic makeup to getting a certain type of neuroblastoma. And so it's going to be, it, it is, it's very complex and it's probably only going to get more complex as we learn more. Absolutely. So. Well, any final thoughts that you, uh, you'd like to leave us with? Uh, anything in particular that you're particularly excited about from the, from the meeting here? Well, this is always my very favorite meeting and I look forward <laughs> to it every two years. Um, and uh, anybody who's listening, who's, a, who's thinking or aspiring to be a, a physician, um, I urge you to consider pediatric oncology as a career. It's uh, incredibly gratifying and you get to take care of absolutely wonderful patients. Um, we are doing better, we're not all the way there yet, but we've made real progress and I think by working together and continuing to collaborate, um, I'm, I'm very confident that we will one day be able to really substantially um, make significant improvements in terms of our treatment so that our, more children are cured and also uh, that we're able to cure our children with less toxicity so that they are able to live nice, long, healthy lives and not suffer sometimes the consequences of the type of therapy that we're giving now, which unfortunately is fraught with all sorts of terrible sequelae. Absolutely. Well, thank you again very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Again. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Terrific conversation. To our listening audience, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions if you send us a note to twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast and sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. Also, thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together. The faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. Thank you.